John Stylenacker was a bet shot in Gilmer County. Folks said he could shoot a fly off a pig's backside at 100 paces. But the day came when old John couldn't hit the broadside of a barn. It didn't matter what he tried, he could not shoot straight. Come evening, he would go out for his hunt, and he'd spy a large doe that showed no fear of him. Now, try as John might, he could never hit this animal. This happened many times, and John couldn't get it out of his head that this mysterious doe was making fun of him. Now, near his cabin lived an old woman that many folks in the community said was a witch. John got to thinking, and he was pretty sure this one put a spell on his rifle so that it wouldn't shoot straight. One night, he made a silver bullet, and when he saw the doe the next time, he took careful aim and wounded the animal in the leg. He followed that trail of blood and it led him straight to the house of the old woman who was thought to be a witch. He knocked on the door and a young girl come to the door and told John that her grandma had just hurt her leg something fierce and couldn't see no one. John nodded and walked off knowing that the old woman had turned herself into that doe. And when he shot the doe, he was really shooting the witch. He didn't have no more trouble with his rifle after that. From Witches, Ghosts, and Signs by Patrick W. Gaynor. Hello to all you guys and gals out there in the hinterlands. We're back. This is Rock, and I'm here with my co-host Max, and we're going to be your guides as we travel the valleys and hollers in search of all things supernatural here at Nightmares and Daydreams. That we will. Welcome, party people. Yeah. As always, Rock and I are going to discuss and debate our way through all things paranormal, legendary, and monstrous. And of course, fun. Fun is why we're here, Max. It is why we do this. Yes, it is. I'd wager we're the most fun-loving duo out there. Yeah, you know, we're just a barrel of monkeys, aren't we? But Max, do you want to know what's not fun? What's that? Having your rifle cursed so that it won't shoot straight, being changed into a beast of burden and ridden till you die, or being struck by a witch ball. Okay, hold on. A witch ball? (laughs) There's a joke in there somewhere. Be serious, Max. Yes, a witch ball is an important tool in the arsenal of witches practicing mountain magic or conjuration hoodoo sometimes called granny magic, 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 which is what this episode is all about. Mountain magic. Guess I was wrong. I assumed we were going to talk about the magic of, like, the dwarves of Middle-earth or something. Oh, nice. Producing plus five flaming axes of orc slaying. Those are great axes, and we've used them on occasions back in our campaigns, but that is a podcast for another day, amigo. No, we're talking about those practitioners of magic in the Appalachian and Ozark ranges here in the States. Mountain magic, haints, witches, melungeons, ghosts, and all sorts of other backwoods conjuration. Wow. All right, so this episode sounds like it's going to be a good one. So earlier you were saying something about being struck by a witch ball? Yeah. You know, according to the lore, if you angered a witch, they'd shoot you with a witch ball, which they could only make every Friday the 13th. So that's interesting. I suppose making them on Friday the 13th adds that little extra dash of bad mojo. You'd assume so. And get this. In addition to making them on Friday the 13th, the devil has to be present in the manufacturing of the witch balls. So these things are pretty valuable and a rare tool in the witch's arsenal. 
In fact, they often go back and try to find and reuse them once they've, you know, used them on a potential victim. So if like a witch down the street goes to make a witch ball and the devil's like, well, now hold up, Rachel's already got me over here. No, no, no. It was like a party, like all the witches showed up. Damnation. Okay, so witch balls are no joke. No. You get the devil involved, that's another level of evil and mayhem altogether. You ain't lying. And you definitely don't want to be hit by one. Agreed. So, looking up witch balls on the interwebs, all I come across are beautiful decorative glass balls. Same thing? No. Witch balls, the ones we're talking about, were not delicate, hand-blown glass globes. In fact, they were made of quite a few disgusting ingredients, which you'd think would be in line with an object created on Friday the 13th with the help of the devil himself. Disgusting ingredients, you say? (laughs) What kinds? A veritable cornucopia of gnarly things. Let's start with human fat, wax, flesh, blood and hair of various animals and or humans. And while they were being brewed, the witches would walk and dance in circles around this cauldron bubbling with this, you know, the unmade witch balls chanting various spells and powering that horrible mix with the eldritch might to do people harm. So, witch balls definitely aren't vegan. No, absolutely not. What, what, was the end, what was the end result? Well, witch balls were the end result, and about the size of a marble, if the lore is to be believed. So, they were hairy? <laughs> These witch balls? <laughs> I see what you're doing. I feel like it's a legitimate question. Uh-huh. What was the end result of getting hit by a witch ball? <laughs> I'm a professional rock, not some silly seventh grader. No offense to seventh graders out there. Right, right. Okay, Mr. Maturity. So they would lay in wait and throw them at folks or animals, which they did quite often. And they'd inspell cattle, pigs, and especially horses. The results were different depending on what the practitioner wanted done to the animal. One thing I ran across several times for horses was that once hit with a witch ball, a horse wouldn't go past a certain landmark, say the end of your property, or wouldn't cross a river near your home. So, thereby rendering the horse less useful if you couldn't use it for transportation, yeah? Yes. I also came across several instances where the horse wouldn't allow itself to be hooked up to a harness for farm work, so yeah cows would stop giving milk, that sort of thing. And so what if people were hit? All sorts of ill effects. The thing was, most witches were kind of already known to the community at large. So a lot of times it would make folks sick and it was kind of a slow burn, not an outright curse to kill, but to slow down, confuse, cause pain. And apparently the spot where a person or animal was struck by a witch ball always had a large bruise. It's funny, when we were researching our first episode, La Lechusa, Mm-hmm. There was some belief that if La Lechusa, the witch owl, were to touch someone, there'd be a bruise, right? Yeah, yeah, that is totally correct. And this is going back to our inaugural podcast, but yeah. Some folks believe La Lechusa could enter a home and sort of siphon your life force, especially if the person was not baptized. And the spot where you were contacted by this entity was bruised. It was always some sort of mark, some bruise. Interesting. So the black magic or witchcraft connection is this. People, you got weird bruises, you might be ensorcelled. Ensorcelled, or you might just be clumsy. Truth. (laughs) But go see your doctor just to be safe. Be like, hey doctor, is this a witch ball bruise? Or did I run into a table? (laughs) You tell me. Well said, Rock. Or maybe just go to the local Kunandera or White Witch, depending. We're all about safety here at Nightmares and Daydreams, Max. 
So tell us more about these witches haunting the Appalachians. Were they similar to the Brujas in South Texas and Mexico? Well, the intent was the same, right? Cause harm, chaos, extort from the local populace. Basically just being sources of evil? Correct. But it was in the way they practiced their craft that was different. The end result was the same, but the way they cursed someone was different, say, than European witches or brujas from Latin America. The witch balls, as far as the lore, is a uniquely Appalachian, Ozark, witchery sort of thing. But the results can be just as devastating as any other witchcraft. Of course. So, just a quick question. Are there good or white witches in the Appalachian folklore that battle these evil witches just as there are good curanderas that ply their white magic against evil brujas in the Mexican culture? Yeah, of course. There are many tales of witch doctors, white witches, herb doctors, going up against witches and turning the tables on them quite often. And the turnabout, the spell reflection or curse reversal against the witch who cast the spell in the first place, can be pretty devastating. You mean the curse reversal itself? Exactly. We're talking situations of the witch doctors like heating up a butcher knife to red hot and then dropping it in water. And some part of the offending witch's body gets a gnarly burn that keeps her out of the public eye as she heals from this burn or whatever it is. You know, so the curse reversal was usually pretty brutal. Just desserts, baby. And very reminiscent of the story you told in Rock's Tales Volume 2 from last season. Go listen to that story, Rock Spins, y'all. It's a good one. Thanks, amigo. And yeah, very similar. And come on, Max, all that witch wants is free milk and butter from a local farmer, so she or he bewitches a cow and steals all the milk. Tale as old as time. Ain't no reason to get all serious and call a witch doctor or root doctor in to get involved. So I noticed you said she or he when you referred to a witch. No male or female designation? No warlocks in them thar hills? Not really. A witch is a witch to folks in Appalachia. Man or woman. Any way you spell it, you really didn't want anything to do with them... And you did your best to steer clear. Just like the witches from various other cultures. Exactly. And like we said earlier, and just like in other cultures, folks usually knew who the local witch was. Yeah. I mean, I think most people know who the bad apple is in the neighborhood. Usually. Yeah. So they could go to this person for some nefarious dark work. It's like a sign on the door. Dark deeds done here. <laughs> Yeah, a person knew where to go to get a dark spell cast. Like, if you wanted to remove a rival in some sort of love connection. Ah, gotcha. Like if two guys had their eyes on the same girl. Instead of engaging your rival in fisticuffs for the love of said lady, you'd go to the local witch to remove him. Another tale old as time, and very reminiscent of a story we told about your old Spanish teacher, Mr. Gonzalez. Back again in that very first episode about La Lechuza. Yeah, good call. Good old Mr. G learned that a rival paid a bruja to get rid of him. For those of you that haven't listened to our Lechuza episode, go back and check it out. It's a great story. Also, Max, I ran into one story while doing some research for this that involves two young ladies that had their eye on the same guy. Uh-oh. Hell hath no fury and all that. Exactly. Did they involve a witch to remove the rival? No. One poisoned the other one with some bad food and she died. <laughs> Damn. I know, right? Horrible, man. But it turned out that this poisoned girl became a vengeful ghost that would choke the girl who poisoned her at night to the point where the poisoner's life was ruined. She couldn't stay married. She constantly kept moving place to place and the ghost would follow her. She eventually went crazy. I imagine they involved the law, right? Yeah, but back then and in that area, the Appalachians, the law could only do so much without witnesses to the crime. But the poisoning woman, if the tales are true, paid for what she did. Supernatural justice. 
Many tales of victims coming back from the grave to right a terrible wrong across many cultures. Absolutely. And I love stories like that. The restless dead coming back to take care of business, as long as they don't come back for me. So let's shift gears a bit. I'd like to dig into some of the more obscure superstitions that are commonplace in the southern Appalachians. Nice. Lead on. You know what happens when you pull a tooth and drive it into an apple tree? Um, bleeding gums? Okay, yeah, probably. But also, good luck. Oh, nice. It's good luck to take a tooth straight from your mouth and hammer it into an apple tree. Uh, also kind of creepy, but... Imagine if you look close and saw a tooth in an apple tree. Only one conclusion. Zombie apple trees exist. That's some good luck right there, though. Okay, so what's an example of bad luck? Okay, it's bad luck for three people to light their cigarettes off the same match. What if it's a lighter? Don't know. What do you care? You don't smoke anyway. Asking for a friend. To be fair, it's probably bad luck to just light a cigarette, period. In the long run. All right, so Rock, did you know it's also bad luck to sweep the floor after the sun goes down? And I knew there was a reason I'm so reticent to sweep after dark. It's your well-developed sixth sense. Also, you're lazy. Fake news, Max. Did you know if you sing before breakfast, you'll cry before supper? What if you skip breakfast and go straight to lunch? Doesn't say. I'm all about the loopholes. But if you kill a toad, your cow will give bloody milk. And that's pretty gross. Gross. I don't kill toads, Max, nor any other amphibians. Also, I don't have a cow. But I've been looking. (laughs) Did you know that it's good luck to take a dog with you when you and your family move, but it's bad luck to take a cat? Well, I think that goes without saying. Thank you. As we all know, cats are evil. Known fact. Last one. And I think we can all identify with this one. You should never burn sassafras in your fireplace, y'all. It's bad luck. Damn! All of us sassafras burners here in Austin have been living on the wild side. You know, Max, I feel like burning sassafras might be code for something. (laughs) Okay, let's end this list with a good luck example. It's good luck to change a horse's name after you buy it. Another very relevant example to all the horse owners here in Austin. What if your new horse has like a super cool name already, like Shadowfax, Lord of All Horses, or Brightmane? Last thing you want to do is change that name. Looks like you just have to deal with the potential bad luck of not changing his name. We live dangerously here at Nightmares and Daydreams, Max. You ready for a story? Yes, I am. Back in those days, there was three groups of folks that was considered witches. The first was people that was deformed. It was considered the devil's work to make a person's body become deformed. So some folks thought if a person looked different from most folks, they was a witch. It certainly didn't help that person none if they lived alone in some dark, out-of-the-way holler, away from other folks. The second group of folks is those that don't put forth their belief in the Almighty front and center, or those with beliefs that are different from folks around them. Lots of settlers from Europe looked different and had different ways to pray. This is why some folks thought all Melungeons were witches. They had different beliefs, and according to some folks, they had no religious beliefs at all. So the label of witches was put on them. The last group was people who were too damn smart or good looking for their own good. People what could get other people to do what they wanted just with a smile. Magnetism, I heard it called once. Lots of times these folks could hypnotize or faith heal folks, and sometimes they was known as witches too, unless they helped folks. Then we called them root doctors or herb doctors. The most powerful of these could go toe-to-toe with witches that cursed regular hard-working folks, so they was prized in the community. 
Folks became witches for different reasons, power over their neighbors. Some foolish youngins became witches because they was bored with their lives, tired of working hard on the farm, so they turned to the devil. Stories say, to become a witch, another witch has to speak for you, introduce you to the rituals, locations and spells you need to meet the devil, so you can pledge your soul to him. Many was the folks that regretted this in the long run. One ritual involved dancing in the woods for 12 nights, and then on the 13th night, the person had to kill a black hen and let its blood spurt on a tree. Then the devil appears near that tree and dances with her. After he makes her sign an oath of loyalty in her own blood, then he bites on her shoulder, which gives her a witch mark, which she can suckle her familiar from. This is a pledge a man named Jonas Dotson made when he became a witch. As I dip the water with the ram's horn, cast me a cruel heart of thorn. As I now to the devil do my soul weeps. I also renounce Christ as my savior and promise the devil my behavior till my life on earth shall cease. May my black and evil soul be of Christian love and grace free as this place is of Greece. And when I become an evil crone, from my outer skin to my inner bone, I'll never give Christians any peace. From the Silver Bullet by H.J. Davis. Damn, Max, that last poem's kind of dark. Well, I guess that's as it should be if you're veering into the dark side like that, don't you think? Renouncing all goodness in the world? One would assume. Pretty creepy. And we see in this story, once again, how people always go after the other. How do you mean? Well, the three categories of potential witches, people that had physical challenges, people with different views or backgrounds, and then people who were just extraordinarily good-looking and charming. Yeah, exactly. You know, life's tough for us good-looking charmers, that's for sure. (laughs) You wish, and I'm serious. (laughs) Another example of how, no matter how the location or culture, we humans love to go after each other. You know, Max, that's sad. Public service announcement, y'all. Let's all strive to be cooler to each other. Don't be so quick to label your neighbor a witch. Well said. Unless you see them dancing around in a pentagram with a creature of darkness in the wee hours, (laughs) then they actually might be a witch, but still... It could be. Unless they're cursing you personally, mind your business. It doesn't cost you nothing to mind your business, y'all. You know, unless you happen to be Geralt of Rivia, (laughs) Monster Hunter Supreme. He's all about killing witches. Nice rolling of the R's there. You like that? Looking forward to season two of The Witcher, you know, in the future. Ditto, yeah. Like, once we're allowed to come out and play. You know, also, we're looking forward to the Wheel of Time series on Amazon. I kind of like the casting choices. Rosamund Pike is Moiraine. Love it. Yeah, she's perfect, yeah. Mm-hmm. Love us some Wheel of Time here. Just finished reading uh, Eye of the World. I'd forgotten how great that book is. Well, Jordan was a badass. We forget that. Recall the days back when we were at the University of Texas co-op, we would read all of the books whenever a new one came up again. Do you remember back in the day when Barnes & Noble was above the bookstore? Word. It was also back in the day when authors actually came out with new books. Yeah, exactly. We're talking to you, Martin, who lives in Santa Fe, New Mexico. I've been by your house, bud. Okay. (laughs) You're stalking George R.R. Martin, is that what you're saying? I've I've driven by his house, man. He has a gold RX-7 with Lannister on the license plate. (laughs) True story. Uh, As long as he always pays his debts. Okay, it's it's cool, people. He's one of our biggest fans. Yeah, along with Will Smith. <laughs> All right, we we digress. As we do, as we do, Max. So let's get into another word I brought up earlier. Haints. 
Sounds like haunts. Well, according to Jake Richards in his excellent book, Backwoods Witchcraft, Conjure and Folk Magic from Appalachia, haint is a southern corruption of the word haunt. So does the term just include ghosts or other phantoms? Well, according to Richards, it includes any number of spirits, including demons, lost souls, ghosts, and even the Cherokee versions of the little people, their versions of the fae. Okay, that's interesting. So I'd assume, much like in other folklore, there are ways to protect yourself from these haints. Totally, much like the peasants of Europe placing witch herbs or iron around their windows or horseshoes over their doors, the folk in Appalachia had similar means of protecting themselves and their homes. Such as? Well, iron is a big one. Well, that makes sense. Iron is kind of a universal in terms of its reputation as being a defense against a host of afflictions, from disease to protection from being kidnapped by the Fae, etc., etc. One unique method of protection I ran across was the use of slack water, which is the water used by blacksmiths to cool iron in. To protect your livestock against witches, you'd pour this slack water over the animals while reciting the Lord's Prayer, or pour some in the water that your animals drank out of. That's pretty cool, actually. It's like the power from the iron just like gets transferred into the water that quenches it. Yeah, it just seeps in there. So in reference to blacksmith, uh, they're looked upon as healers and magic workers in many cultures. Just a quick FYI. I have read that. So another way involves horseshoes. Throw a horseshoe in your fireplace and toss some salt over it. And according to the lore, as long as that horseshoe remains warm, no evil can enter your home. So those protections are for the home and animals. Were there charms to protect people that they could wear on their person? Seems like every culture has some sort of bauble that wards off evil, Mm -hmm. like the necklaces or bracelets with eyes painted on them to ward off the evil eye that are so prevalent in Greek culture. Of course. The simplest one is to turn your pockets inside out as you traveled. Now this one, this turning of your clothes inside out, runs across many cultures. In Russia, the Leshy will leave you be if you wore your shoes backwards while walking through his forest. While in New Mexico, a man named John could take his shirt off, turn it inside out, and place it on the ground, and then have the ability to bring witches down from the skies that he saw that were traveling as balls of fire. I know from now on I'm turning my pockets inside out on the way home. You can never be too sure in these trying times. Wise precaution. And going back to iron, another simple way is to carry a nail in your pocket. Just make sure not to sit down on it, unless you want a tetanus shot. (laughs) Yeah, those hurt. Uh, the classic rabbit's foot is also another form of protection. Poor Bugs. Maxie. Bugs Bunny is way too smart to ever lose his foot to some charm seeker. He would just dress up and drag and fool whoever is hunting him. True enough. Any others? There's literally too many to list here. But another classic one that crosses cultures is a tossing of grains of salt or seeds of some sort across your doorstep. Oh yeah, the belief that whatever wanted to do you harm had to count every seed or grain of salt before they could ever enter your house. True. And by that time, the sun would be ready to come up, and theoretically, you'd be safe for another day. So you ready for another story? Bring it on, my man. Folks around the mountain town of Sandy Ridge knew that a large clan of Melungeons lived thereabouts. Their foreign habits, wicked ways, and clannishness earned them a reputation as witches. Boyd T. Bowling of Flat Gap, Virginia, tells a story he heard from his father about the Melungeon clan. Way back yonder, when my family, the Bowlings, first settled in these hills, there was an old Melungeon man who lived near Sandy Ridge. This old man was known far and wide as a gun witch. His name was Aaron Wooten. 
One day, Uncle Jerry Bowling met Aaron Wooten near the hump of the bridge. He stepped up to Uncle Jerry and held out his hands. Jerry, let me see your gun. Now, Uncle Jerry was a good man and wasn't afraid of nothing come hell or high water, usually. But he knowed that the Wootens are evil witches and in cahoots with the devil and so wanted to step lightly around the man. He heard what folks said about him. Old Aaron Wooten, take your rifle gun and look it over to see if there were any brass in it. For some reason, witches couldn't put a spell on brass. So if your gun had brass, he'd give it right back to you. If it didn't, he'd curse it and hand it back. Then he'd dare you to step back a few paces and shoot him with the gun. So old Aaron examined Uncle Jerry's rifle gun and handed it back and said, Jerry, I want you to shoot me with that gun. But Uncle Jerry was nervous as a rattlesnake and says, Maybe I hadn't ought to shoot you, Aaron. Old Aaron had a fit laughing and finally says, Now Jerry, you wouldn't be weak-kneed, would you? Then he walked ten paces back and dared him again. You don't have a white liver, do you, Jerry? Now this riled Uncle Jerry something fierce, but he still didn't want to kill old Aaron. So he took good aim and fired his rifle gun and shot the tip of Aaron's left ear clean off. Well, this scared old Aaron so much, he damn near fainted before he hollered, Damn you, Jerry Bowling. You just tried to kill me. Then after he found he wasn't hurt so bad, he walked back up to Uncle Jerry and said, You tricked me. When Uncle Jerry saw that old Aaron was so flustered, he explained to him that he had just fixed his gun and had lost a screw and replaced it with a new brass screw. Now that learned old Aaron a lesson of sorts. He never stopped witching, but he never asked anybody to shoot him after that. Another story of a witch cursing a gun. It's so interesting, the witch's ability to curse a rifle so that it won't shoot straight, which seems to be a major theme in the folklore of the region. Agreed. Personally, I think it's such a large part of the lore because a rifle allows a person to hunt, and in hunting, that person brings home much-needed food for the family, which can then be traded for other supplies a household can use. So the witch's reputation as a force of chaos, this creature of darkness that disrupts the sacred bond of family, becomes that much more fearsome, that much more dangerous. The thing that confuses me about it is that it seems like guns being mostly iron would repel the magic of the witches, but... Yeah, you would think. Apparently, it's just not in the script. (laughs) (laughs) It's almost like the thing we fear becomes our reality. Exactly. You know, I mean, for those families living off the land, what could be more scary than being unable to go out and provide for your family? Like the one tool that's essential for your survival, your rifle, is made useless by the curse of this witch. No wonder folks step so lightly around them. In all cultures, am I right? Unless you're a witch hunter like Vin Diesel in The Last Witch Hunter. (laughs) Dude, I got love for Vin Diesel because he is a huge D&D nerd. But he does kind of play the same role in every movie. The unstoppable badass. I mean, he can't help it, he's badass. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that movie, Last Witch Hunter, is based off a D&D campaign he ran for years. Nice. So another question, and you brought up this word at the beginning of the episode, and then again in one of the previous stories. What is a melungeon? You know, that's a good question. But just real quick, the first time I heard the term was in Hellboy's The Crooked Man. It's a great story involving mountain magic, witches, and the like. Everything we're talking about here. Man, you love some Hellboy. I do. So, Melungeons. Okay. Well, that's a complicated question in the region. The term Melungeon seems to be anyone of mixed race ancestry. And it seems some of these people were ostracized because of their appearance. And the term is, or was, considered an insult. Seems like racism rearing its ugly head again. Sadly. These folks are different. They must be witches. 
As was mentioned in the previous story, and the term's a large part of the lore of the region, and even in the Hellboy story, The Crooked Man, Mignola portrays them as these supernatural outsiders of whatever community they live in. But yeah, the term is archaic and not really in use much anymore, which is a good thing, I'd wager. Agreed. Sounds very much like the French word melange, which means mixture. Look at that French degree coming in handy. Nice. (laughs) You know, some experts posit that that could be where the word came from, due to an influx of French Huguenot immigrants in the region in the 1700s. Mom was wrong. You can do something with a French degree. Yes, you can. You know, I fully expect you to be my translator when I go to Roland Garros one day. You got it. So we're almost done, but I think we have time for one more story. You ready? Always. From the mouth of Miss Lula Drury of Ferrum, Virginia. I was a senior girl teaching in a one-room school in 1888 out of Shooting Creek. This was an isolated community in Franklin County. While I was teaching, I was boarding at the home of Kevin and Eileen Linkletter. After a year of teaching, I fell in love and married one of the mountain boys, Craig Drury, and we settled right near the Linkletters. After we had been settled for several weeks, I decided to ask Eileen about a particular rifle that hung on a set of elk horns on her wall. Now the rifle was very fine, silver work and dark wood on it. Now Mr. Linkletter was a great hunter, and I noticed that he never took it off the wall. So Eileen told me gently that it was none of my business and that if her husband wanted to confide in me, he would. And she winked and said, maybe I should just go up and ask him and see what he'd say. Now this intrigued me and I made my mind up to ask him one day. At the end of the next school year, word got around that I was marrying into one of the local families and Kevin, who was kind, got into his head that I was a local now. So one day I decided to ask him about the gun. I was flattered and surprised when he took me into his confidence and told me this story. Many years ago, my nephew Mize Thorpe killed his brother Nick. Everyone knew it was a case of common, clear, cold-blooded murder, and we were sure he'd spend the rest of his life in the pen if they wouldn't just hang him entirely. But Mize, snake that he was, got him a slick big city lawyer, and that lawyer made the jury unsure, had them question if Mize had actually done the deed. And so he got off scot-free. The town was shocked, and for a while looked like folks was gonna take the law in their hands and string him up anyway, not let him escape justice. But it never happened. But to make matters worse, as time passed, there were signs that Mize had become a witch and was conjuring folks and doing all sorts of evil deeds in the community. Not only had he killed his brother out of jealousy, but now he was harming other folks, God-fearing folks. So I went over the mountain to Carroll County to see Josh Say, himself a good conjure man, and he told me what I'd have to do to take Mize's magic so he couldn't harm people no more. One way was to make a wax doll that looked like him and stick pins in it. Or I could make a silver bullet, draw his picture on a tree, and shoot it with that new-made silver bullet. Now, I love my nephew Nick, and in my heart I knew Mize had killed his brother, and I vowed to get even with him. And I'd just been biding my time. So I melted down a quarter and made me a silver bullet and put in the rifle gun you're so keen on, and hung it up on them, their antlers, waiting for the time to be right. 
Now at this point, Kevin had worked himself up so much in a fury that he abruptly got up and walked off, leaving the room, leaving me there. I stared up at the rifle gun with the silver bullet loaded in it. I never spoke to Kevin or his wife Eileen about it again. About a year later, Mize Thorpe was found dead in the backwoods with a bullet wound to his heart. They never found who did it. But folks around here believe the authorities didn't try too hard. Most folks believe he got what he deserved. It wasn't too many years before Kevin died and we went to his wake. As soon as I was in the house, I noticed that fine rifle was missing from the elk's horns where it had rested all those years. I didn't ask about it, nor did I tell anybody, not even my husband, what Kevin had told me. But I think I know how Mize Thorpe met his end. As collected by Raymond H. Sloan at Rocky Mountain, Virginia, March 27, 1939. Damn, seems like Kevin got even with his nephew, didn't he? Yep, seems like. He forged his weapon and bided his time. Revenge, as they say, is a dish best served cold. Pretty sweet. I mean, in the context. We don't recommend vigilante justice, but... Yeah, of course. That was a different time, and Mize was the right bastard. Yeah, he was. First a murderer, then a witch. And Kevin became a witch hunter. Like Vin Diesel. (laughs) Just like Vin Diesel. Max, guys and gals, I think that's going to do it for us this week. As always, thanks for hanging out with Max and myself as we talk about spooky stuff. And please, please, don't forget to tell your friends about our little podcast. The more folks that like, subscribe, and review, the better it is for us and for you as listeners. (laughs) For everybody across the board. Well said, Max. Yeah, guys and gals, spread your love of nightmares and daydreams. And as always, check out our website at nightmarespodcast.net. Say hi to us on Facebook and send us a tweet. We'd really love to hear from you. The part of our show is Teresa Joy. She works hard to give us the amazing sound and music in our show. She does. Find and follow her at Viobrite, V-I-O-B-R-I-T-E, on Facebook and Instagram. You'll be glad you did. And don't forget to check out her new album, Go Dust. So, once more, folks, let's take care of each other during these trying times. Thanks for listening. And as always, sweet dreams. Sweet dreams.